My name is Matt. Uh, I serve as pastor of equipping community development over at uh, Park Sister Church, Elmwood. I'm really glad to be here with you all this morning. It's good to see some familiar faces and some new faces. And if you are new and I haven't met you, uh, I'd love to get to know you. So feel free to come on up after the service and introduce yourself. But I'm excited. Let's jump right into it this morning. You all have been going through the book of Psalms, which I kind of feel like is a default thing for churches. When you get to the summer, people are unwinding, and you're like, I don't know what I want to do for a sermon series, so let's do summer in the Psalms. So um, it's good. It's good. I, I think it's, it's worth doing as we're unwinding, trying to relax and reflect a little bit on what God has done for us. But I just want to note that I feel like we have different categories for the book of Psalms, depending on where we come from or our faith tradition or the generation that we come from. Some of us look at the book of Psalms and, and we think of the Psalms as, as kind of this, this hope in, in the midst of difficult times. We go to it for a, a source of encouragement when we're facing different challenges. Some of us use the book of Psalms as, uh, as this source of a prayer language for us, right? We go to the Psalms. When God has spoken to us, we speak his words back to him as we're trying to kind of cultivate an intimacy with our maker. Some of us really appreciate the beauty of the Psalms. There, there's beautiful language and poetry built into them. That's why oftentimes we see the Psalms, right, on, on coffee cups or on decorations or, or whatever it is. There is a beauty that is inherent in the book of Psalms. There's also a level there where we use the Psalms, some of us liturgically. Many of the worship songs that we sing are informed by this book. At, at Elmwood, one of the things that we do to kind of employ the Psalms in our worship service is through what we call the pastoral prayer. Uh, and so every week we read through one psalm and then we pray as a congregation in response to that psalm and, and then we pray the Lord's Prayer together. It has a formative nature to it. And while all of those things are certainly true, right, they're beautiful, they're a source of encouragement, they're something that we can go to time and time again, there's something amazing about them, what ultimately holds true at the heart of this book is that the Psalms have always served as the prayer book of God's people, as the prayer book of God's people. Ultimately, they're this library of, of Israelite poetry that has been compiled and edited and put together in just the perfect way under God's provision and sovereign hand. And it's in the Psalms where we see this visceral, honest thing going on, where on one hand, we have God's word to his people. So we hear God's heart through the text, what God is up to, how he desires to be in a relationship with his people. And then over here, there's this authentic expression by the psalmist themselves themselves of what it looks like for them to be in relationship with this God in all of the joys and all of the, the trials and all of the complexities that our lives pose for us. Now, I want to start out this morning by reading these first three verses again, because kind of like when you open up some books, you have like an introduction or you might have like a prologue. These first three verses for us this morning serve as this kind of prologue to the rest of what the text is trying to tell us, to give us the lens or the framework through which we're supposed to process the rest of it. So I'm going to read this again, and then we'll pray together, and then we'll actually dive more deeply into the text. So it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he's good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands from east and west, from north and south. Let's keep that in mind as we go more deeply into this text, but let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are a God who calls us into relationship with yourself from all different walks of life. Each of us comes here with different joys and 
different challenges, with different questions and hopes and fears and doubts. And God, in your goodness, you meet each of us in these. And you are faithful to us beyond anything that we deserve. Lord, we ask this morning that your spirit would open our eyes to your word, that you would be the one to teach us, that you would change our hearts, that we would come before your throne in worship, and that you would help us to respond to you in obedience for your glory and for the good of your people and for the world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one amazing belief that we hold as Jesus followers is that the God that we worship is abundantly good. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. All right. I know there might be some cessationists in here, but we can be a little charismatic this morning here, right? So he's completely dependable. And most of us in this room, we might, we might hold to that and affirm that wholeheartedly. We might say, well, of course, that's, that's a common truth that we have. But I would venture to say that oftentimes in our day-to-day lives, sometimes we take that for granted. But friends, that is one of the most profound things that we believe of our faith, that our God is good. And the reason that that is so amazing for us is because that is not true of every culture and faith tradition around the world and historically. Not every people group has inherently believed that the gods that they worshiped were good. We even see this when we look at the biblical text and the context where the cultures that were surrounding God's people, whether that be in the ancient Near East of the Old Testament or the, the Greco-Roman context of the New, we find that the people that were surrounding either Israel or the church, however you want to look at this, they didn't all believe that their gods were committed to their well-being at the heart of it. Many times there was this fear or at least this this understanding that existed that if the people didn't obey the gods exactly how they wanted them to, then there could be some severe repercussions to that. Maybe the gods would hold back food at harvest time. Maybe they would withhold children from them and their families, but there was a serious threat that if they didn't obey the gods rightly, then there would be something that might happen. And there was not only, con- there was not only a, a, a conflict that existed between the people and their gods, there was also this idea that the gods themselves were oftentimes in conflict. A lot of the time, the gods were fickle and they were dramatic. They couldn't make up their minds and their character was constantly changing. They had a very low value for human beings. They were very degrading. They viewed humans as their slaves and pawns more than anything else. Maybe if we're going to put it in other words, many of the peoples of the ancient world and even in some faith traditions today worship their gods because they are powerful, but not always because they are of admirable character. And even as we think about kind of our cultural moment today, many of us might not ascribe to a a traditional religious conception of the world or traditional religious expressions or understandings. And maybe that's you. And if you're here, then that's awesome. But I would venture to say whatever our religious background or faith background is, there's still kind of this residual underlying understanding that how we act and what we do is going to impact us ultimately in some way. Some people use the language of of karma or whatever it is. Or some of us use the idea of sowing and reaping, that if we do something good, then something good will happen over here. If we do something bad, then there might be consequences over here. And for those of us in, in certain faith traditions that believe in an afterlife, all other religious systems other than the Christian faith hold to the idea that if we do not achieve something, if we do not do the right thing or do this in the right way, then ultimately our eternal outcome is going to be tainted in some form or another. 
And if we take the time to think about kind of the, the implications of this or how that mindset and worldview plays out practically in life, we find that it's honestly really exhausting. It's honestly really terrifying. What ends up happening is people end up running this race where they're trying to make up for imperfections or, or failures that we all have, constantly trying to prove ourselves, even if we don't even know what we're proving ourselves to. Sometimes we end up making ourselves our own gods, seizing autonomy, trying to do things in our own way for those of us who might come from a more uh, atheistic perspective because if we don't make up for ourselves, if we don't do the right thing, then who is out there that is going to make things right for us? But friends, the, the story that the scriptures tell us this morning is something that is drastically different. In many ways, it is the polar opposite of that. It's a story where even though we don't do the right thing, by nature and choice have chosen to do the wrong thing, in fact, there is this God who is not only infinitely powerful and to be feared, but the good news is that he is abundantly good. And he has graciously chosen to intervene in his mercy and save a people for himself. And his character is congruent. And he is steadfast in the love that he has for his people. And he never goes back on his word. And as we look at Psalm 107 today, as we break this down, what I want us to see is this text specifically is telling us kind of a, a microcosm of a story. It's telling us a, a small story of what the text calls the redeemed. If you look at verse 2, you'll see that phrase, the redeemed there. And it, give us, it gives us what I call four different portraits of the redeemed, four different stories of what God's people have encountered in the past. And as we look at these portraits, as we break them down, it's my hope that you would at least be able to identify with one of these on some level as we see that God delights in identifying with his people so that he might redeem them and save them into abundant eternal life. So let's look at these portraits one at a time. Look at verses four through nine with me. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds to mankind, for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. So I gave each of the uh, portraits this morning a title. We'll see if this is working. The title that I gave the, uh, uh, this first portrait is The Wanderer. The wanderer. As the psalmist starts us out telling the story of where God's people have come from, we meet a person who finds themselves in a, a moment of desperation because they're in a, a wilderness situation. Some of us who are familiar with, with Genesis 1 where, where the, the, the God creates the world and then he has to bring form to it. It is wild and waste. There is a, a wasteland before God causes things to sprout up out of the land. It's the same language used here when it says desert wasteland or wilderness or whatever your translation puts there in verse 4. Now the text doesn't say whether this person is wandering in the wilderness because of their own doing or because this was something that was done to them but that's not the point the point is, is that as we read this we're supposed to be thinking of Israel and their wilderness wanderings if you're, if you're familiar with the book of Numbers or Exodus that's what this is supposed to stir to mind for us but what we see is this person is in a place of deep deep desperation because they cannot find a place to settle in they cannot find a place where they belong now, if you take enough time to observe people, to learn about how human beings work in psychology and sociology, if you just sit on the street and you watch people interact, you will find that at the heart of it, we all need a place 
to belong. We're all looking for that. One of the common themes that exists that has just penetrated our culture is this idea of inclusivity and equality. And whether you agree with how those expressions are played out, what I think that is is an overflow of this idea that we all want to belong somewhere. Now, many of us would call this place where we want to belong home. Right? It's the place where we long for at the end of the day. It's the place where we feel relationally and physically safe. And yet, because of life circumstances, just like we see with this person right here, oftentimes we find ourselves in a place where we're longing for another place. We feel like we are, we're not quite at home. We're feeling unsettled. Maybe you find yourself wandering in the, in the wrong circles or participating in things that, that you never thought that you would. Maybe you feel like you're emotionally or, or mentally wandering. I can guarantee you, if I go on long enough, you will mentally wander at some point, right? But, but the point is that maybe you're trying to figure out what's next for you. Maybe you're struggling to commit to the season that God has called you to be in, and so you wander down a different trajectory. There are levels where we are constantly wandering, seeking to find a place where we can belong. And if you find yourself in that seat this morning, then I want to encourage you that there is good news for you. So hang in there, and we'll get to that. So let's look at the next portrait here. This is the person that we call the captive. The captive, verses 10 through 16. Some sat in darkness, in utter darkness, prisoners suffering in iron chains because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the Most High, so he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled, and there wasn't anyone to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness, the other darkness, and he broke their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfeeling love and his wonderful deeds to mankind, for he breaks down gates of bronze and he cuts through bars of iron. Now, when we look at the captive, it's helpful, again, to think about Israel's history. Because what did Israel experience? They experienced exile. They disobeyed God, and as a result, God sent them to Babylon for a season. And some scholars would associate at least part of this text with that happening and are reflecting on that. So for the ancient Israelite, this scenario is stirring up and pressing into what it looks like to be imprisoned to your enemy. And while many of us, especially in, in our country, in our cultural setting, have not experienced that kind of external captivity, right? Many of us have not been into captivity to our, our greatest enemies in, in that sense nationally. But the truth here is that whether you have experienced it or not, there's going to come a time in our lives where we are wrestling with the idea of captivity to something, something. We are going to have to wrestle through what it means to to fight against being a captive to something that does not honor God. Many of us, the way this plays out for us is not necessarily in a national power, but in a vocational setting. Many of us are captives to our jobs, and we don't even know it. Many of us are captives to our schedules, and we find that our schedule dictates our life instead of our lives dictating what we do with our schedules. Maybe you're retired and you're here, and you find that you're a captive to boredom. And you just don't know what your purpose is in this season. Maybe you're a captive to a certain relationship that is controlling everything about your present state of life. Maybe you've experienced a tragic event and you still feel like you're an emotional captive to that situation. You're trying to grieve it, you're trying to work through it, and you're still struggling to do that. Some of us do face explicit captivity to certain things like uh, uh, addiction and, and, and substance abuse. Some of us feel like we're captives to some chronic illness 
that, that we've gone through. The doctors don't know what's going on. I'm not sure how to work through that. You, you don't know what you're doing, and, and you're just trying to figure out, what am I going to do next as a result of this illness? How am I ever going to be set free from this thing that plagues me? We find that captivity comes in tons of shapes and sizes. And as we look at the language that the, the psalmist uses here, in their setting, it was almost certainly talking about physical darkness in verse 10. Because in their context, when you're put in jail, you're put into an underground pit in, in most situations. But, but there's still a level where there's an emotional darkness that is haunting this person. And so he's crying out to the Lord for help. And if you find that you're in a place of emotional darkness, if you find that you're in a place of captivity to someone or something, then I want you to know that there is a way out. And hold on, we'll we'll get there in a minute. Look at verse 17. Some became fools to their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and he healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them sacrifice thank offerings and tell of his works with songs of joy. This is the person that I called the fool. The fool. Similar to kind of the captive who reflects Israel being sent into exile because of their sin, when we look at the fool here, what we see is that their poor decision-making, as the text would put it, their rebellious ways, their sinful behavior, their iniquities, as the second part of verse 17 would put it, has finally caught up with them. Now let's take a step back for a second and consider that word fool because the way our world uses it now is not always the way the Bible uses it. So fool is not the equivalent of of stupid. It's not an intellectual term. When the Bible talks about the term fool, it has more to do with one's orientation towards God. So if one is wise over here, then they're skillfully, practically living out what it means to be in obedience to God. And on the other hand, if they're foolish over here, then there's this level where they are rejecting God's design and rule and trying to seize autonomy for themselves, doing it their way instead of God's way. So here we meet a fool who has taken up a life that is contrary to what God would have for him. And in this case, God's word says that it has resulted in some sort of affliction. Now, contextually speaking, this is probably talking about some sort of sickness because verse uh, 18 goes on to say that they loathed food and so this person won't eat and as a result, they are dying from the inside out. But what we're seeing happen, although it's clear that our sin does not always result in sickness, what we're seeing played out is the truth that our physical health and our spiritual health can at times indeed be related. And here, where this guy is rejecting God, his spiritual health is clearly in need, he is spiritually sick, there is a result, there is a consequence here of physical illness. I know for me, as I kind of think through which of these portraits, the wanderer, the captive, the fool, and then we're going to look at one more in a minute, which one resonates with me? The fool is the one that resonates with me the most. Like, I'm constantly in a place of having to fight this tension of, okay, here's God's design, here's what he wants me to do, and here's my preference, and here's what I would prefer to do. Now, sometimes they line up, but oftentimes they do not. 
and I'm having to reorient myself around what God has called me to do. And this happens in a lot of areas, my vocation and my marriage and in my day-to-day responsibilities. Like I'm constantly in this place of having to come under God's rule and reign. And I'm sure I am not the only one in this room that finds themselves fighting this tension and this battle. But the good news is, is even for us fools, even for us who wrestle through what it means to come under God's ways, there is good news for us even in our most foolish, foolish moments. Let's look at the final portrait. This person is the anxious, the anxious. Some went out on the sea in ships, this is verse 23, and there were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep, for he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders, the anxious, the anxious. Now, I don't think it is any secret that we live in an anxious, high-speed world. I think there's a lot of reasons why this is the case, but I think one of the main reasons is kind of this uptick of technology and industry in the past few years. Now, don't, let, don't hear me knocking on technology. I think technology is a very good thing, but one of the implications of being so technologically advanced, especially in our, in our country, in our, our cultural moment, is that we can be enormously efficient. But with that efficiency also comes the expectation that we can be uh, faster in our responses to another, write texts and emails or just one click away, so why couldn't you respond to me 20 minutes ago instead of now, right? And there's this expectation that we can make wiser decisions in a shorter time frame, but the reality is, is we're still human beings even if the technology is growing. And maybe for some of you that aren't like tech savvy, you feel anxious just thinking about the newest like TV subscriptions and newest iPhone and, and, and whatever is going on social media platform. I tend to think that I'm pretty techy, and yet I, I was coaching some kids one day and they go over while they were getting a water break and they whip out their phones and they're like, they're probably like eight years old. I'm like, what are you doing with a phone? And they whip out their phones and they're on TikTok. And I, I'm like, I don't even know what this is. That was the first time in my life I actually started to feel quite old. But, but, it, it, but it, you know, no matter where you're at, kind of on the, on the tech spectrum, if you're into the latest and greatest things that our world offers you, like, you realize it is tiring to keep up. It is, is exhausting to try and figure things out. The world is moving exponentially faster, and for some reason, we've fallen into the trap of believing that we need to spin the cogs on the wheels even faster to keep up. But what we find sociologically is that's really damaging to us as human beings. It really screws us up when we try and keep up with those rhythms. And that idea of a, a franticness, that idea of anxiety, that idea by being driven by your, your emotions into what you need to be doing next, I think is what this text is communicating to us. Because in verse 23, we meet these sailors, and they're out to sea. And if they are talking about being in captivity here, then they're not out to sea of their own free will. They're probably doing this in service of, of some sort of king. Because if you're an Israelite, you don't go out to sea. That's a dangerous place. 
That is an unknown place. There's things out there that you don't know how to handle those kind of threats. And what we see happens is God, in his perfect control over nature, ends up sending a storm on the sea, and these sailors are freaking out. They do not know what to do. If you can think of kind of a worst-case scenario in your life where you're trying to preserve your life at all costs, for me, one of the things that I don't know why in the past 10 years I've become kind of freaked out about flying and like that feeling of being like out of control, right? It's I'm okay about the flying. I'm, I'm more freaked out about the crashing part, right? So, so you know, this, this idea of being out of control, like I don't know what to do. Like there's nothing I can do in this situation. That is kind of a, a glimpse of what is going on here in their hearts. God has poured a storm upon them. They're out of control. They're already in a place that makes them uncomfortable and they don't know what to do about it. And yet, just like we see with the wanderer and the captive and now with the anxious, this psalm does a very thorough job of reminding us that there is still good news to be had for God's people. And the question is why? Why is there still good news in all of these crazy situations? And let me suggest to you that the news is good this morning because the king is good. The news is good because the king is good. The psalm that we're looking at this morning lays out four different stories about different types of people and the struggles that they're going through. But what I don't want us to miss is those first three verses that are the lens through which we look at the rest of this text, giving thanks to the Lord because he's good and his love endures. Let the redeemed tell their story, the ones that God gathered from all different parts of the land. We need to remember that because what's very clear in this whole psalm is that God's people come from a variety of backgrounds. And in the same way, most of us come to this room. We come with different baggage. We come with different situations. We come with different joys, different challenges. Some of us probably experienced a roller coaster even this week. If not, then you certainly did over the past couple years with COVID. But what we see in the scripture is that at the heart of it, Every human being is essentially living out the same story. Now, there are different expressions of how that story plays out uniquely for you, but we are all living out the same story themes, the story where we all need redemption because for one reason or another, we've chosen to go our own way and turned away from God. It's a story where our selfish choices have turned, in, have, have turned and resulted in a broken world. I don't think when we're doing evangelism anymore, when we're talking to our neighbors about Jesus, we need to do a huge job at convincing people that the world is not the way that it should be. This is kind of common knowledge now. It's a story where we wander about looking for places to belong and what the result of that is, is we end up enslaving ourselves to people and things that are not worthy of our devotion. It's a story where we foolishly pursue what we want according to our preferences instead of what God has clearly called us to do and we're racked with anxiety and fear because we keep longing for peace and acceptance that only God can provide for us. But that is not the end of the story. That is just the beginning here. That is not the end, because as complicated as the situations are for the people in this text, and as complex and as broken as our lives can be, take note that these people, with all of their brokenness, with all of their crazy dynamics that are going on, with all of the diversity of of challenges that they're facing, these are the people that God calls the redeemed. 
the good news this morning is that God is so persistent and good. Remember, this is a unique thing to our faith. God is so persistent and good that he takes on flesh in the person of Jesus and added a defining chapter to every one of our stories who would place our faith in Christ. This is a very, very big deal. We see that the Son of God left the comforts of home to become the wanderer in our midst so that he could bring us back to the Father. We see that the innocent, sinless Lamb of God is taken captive to sinners and allows himself to be executed so we would not be captives to sin any longer. We see that in Jesus, the wise king is humiliated like a fool, naked on a cross, so that his people would no longer be captivated by foolishness, but would be characterized by fear of the Lord as we walk in obedience and the power of the Spirit. And remember that Christ, the one who Colossians calls the Lord of glory, subjected himself willingly. He did not have to do this. Subjected himself willingly to our anxious and fearful world so that in every single thing that we face, we could rest in him. This is good news. This is where we find our hope in the fact that God delights in identifying with us and there is nothing that we face that Christ has not already conquered on our behalf. And when we think about this story of what what has happened among God and his people and what he has done for us in Jesus, this is the story that has shaped and molded them into a people who are zealous for him. And I want that for us. Go with me to the last verse of this text because the psalmist spends 42 verses and he sums it up here in verse 43 with this phrase right here. Let the one who is wise heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. Let the one who is wise heed these and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. Park, I want you to experience all the the joy that comes from living this wise life that is described here. And according to the psalmist, according to this text, inspired by God's spirit, the main way that we are characterized by doing that is by remembering that we are called to remember and reflect upon God's work for us. We are called to remember and reflect upon God's work for us. Friends, the life of one who faithfully follows Jesus is marked by remembering what Jesus has done over here and then consistently and constantly responding to it in our day-to-day lives, whether we face joys or challenges. It's not something we do and then we go to Christ. We look at Christ first and respond as a result of what he has done. So I want to give us kind of just three ways, three basic ways that we can kind of begin to respond and remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us as we kind of lean into what God's Spirit might have for us today. Three steps here. First one is this, get into God's word. I know I said it would be basic. They're gonna be very fundamental here, but I believe they're profound. Get into God's word. One of the only ways that we're gonna remember what God has done for us is by opening a Bible and reading about what God has done for us. Right? Many of us face challenges in our day-to-day lives and, and, and we try and process those through various means and different lenses, but what about if we opened up the scriptures every time we faced a different situation or a different circumstance and we processed it through what the scriptures had done? If we want to be a people who are passionate for the Lord, if we want to be a people who are shaped by his spirit, then this is an absolute. Now, some of you aren't big readers, Listen to the scriptures. Find ways to go about it. Have someone read the scriptures to you. Get in a community group and read the scriptures corporately together. There's plenty of ways that you can do this. Second, 
One of the things that we observe is this idea of cultivating a life of prayer. There is a refrain that exists in every one of the portraits where they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivers them from their distress and then they thank him and tell others about him. Do you, see, do you see that? They cry out to the Lord, he delivers him, they thank him, they tell others about him. There's this constant thing that starts with cultivating a life of genuine prayer. And the reality is, is when we spend enough time doing that first step, reading God's word, here, here's a secret. You're gonna find that God's word doesn't agree with you on everything. And that's a good thing. And that's not God's problem, that's your problem. And it's in those moments that we need to take the time to submit ourselves to scripture and cry out to God and say, God, change my heart. Make me into a person who delights in your will and doesn't function according to the way that I think things should be, but according to the way that you think that they should be. Finally, pursue Christ-centered community. Community grounded in Christ is a huge gift. God does not just save us in Christ out of hell. He saves us into relationship with himself and, and into this beautiful relationship with others who have placed their faith in Jesus. That is an amazing thing. And community is one of the greatest casualties of this past year with COVID. And it's something that we as a church need to fight for in this season to reclaim. Because the reality is there's gonna be times when you don't want to read God's word. There's gonna be a time when you don't really feel like praying and what's gonna happen is that it's going to need to be God's people who remind you of his goodness and what he has done for you. So press into that Christ-centered community, whether that be a community group or however you experience that. But if you're here and, and you're not a Jesus follower, I also wanna encourage you to consider this morning, what is it that's holding you back from placing your faith in him. Ask yourself that because he wants to take your story just like he's taken the majority of us in this room. He wants to take your story as broken, as complex, or maybe even as good as it is in this season and he wants to make it into something redemptive and more beautiful and amazing than you can imagine and conceive of and he is the only one who is truly able to do that. And church, you are those who are beloved by the Lord. And I want you to know that no matter what you are facing this morning, this story of the redeemed is your story. It's not just Israel's story here. It's not just us corporately. Yes, it's that too. But every one of you in the seats who have placed your faith in Jesus, it's, it's true that you have been brought back to your creator. You have been restored in your relationship with him. You find approval and love in the one whose approval and, uh, and whose approval and love ultimately only matters, God himself. And you can rest in knowing that no matter what you are facing, good, bad, otherwise, whatever it is, he is in the business of making all things new, including your own life, including your own story. So I'm gonna pray, and I just want us to, I'm gonna give us a moment to just reflect on our own story and the ways that we have, have worked and, and allowed God to redeem that. And I wanna encourage you as a response to this, as you go through these things, to then go out, you pray to God, you read his word, right? You, and then you go out and you tell others about the way that he has redeemed you and what he has done for you. So let's take a moment to pray, and then we're gonna uh, take a moment to transition to communion together here. So let's pray together. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in, in thought, in word, in deed, in, in innumerable ways, by the things that we've done, by the things that we have left undone. We confess that we've not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. 
Lord, some of us come here this morning recognizing that it's because of our sin that we are facing really serious consequences in this life. Some of us come here and we know our our secret sin and we haven't experienced the consequences and yet there's something inside of us that is, is convicting us. Lord, some of us come here and we're facing real challenges in our life. We don't know how we're going to make ends meet. We feel like we are wandering. We feel like we're struggling to commit. We feel like we are being thrown around like the, the, the anxious people, the mariners on the, on the sea that in the storm that you have sent. Lord, some of us don't know what to do. And so, Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would forgive our sin. Lord, we ask that you would, by your spirit, reorient and renew our minds, that we would be a people who are wise, that we don't walk in foolishness. And Lord, for those of us who are facing challenges out of our control, not because of sin or otherwise, but because of circumstances that we did not bring up for ourselves and we don't know what to do about them, I ask that you would encourage us today. Help us to see the hope that is in Jesus that he takes on flesh and identifies with us so that he might redeem every part of us, that he might draw us into your presence in his goodness. Lord, we believe that you are good and we thank you for that. Lord, help us to amend what we are. Would you direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name and all of God's people said, amen.